nice to have people back in the building. <laughs> I didn't start off wanting to be a YouTube star, so this is much more in my, uh, in my wheelhouse, as we would say. The uh, Torah portion for this morning, that beginning, as I said, the third book of the Torah, the Sefer Vayikra, represents or presents for us in a modern context a great disconnect, but I want to pull the lens out a little bit and give you kind of a bird's eye macro view of an idea that emerges from it, just one idea. And that is in the ancient world, it's not unusual that there were places of religious worship. In fact, when you look at the great empires and now archeological remains of ancient Babylon, Mesopotamia, Egypt, we find that part and parcel with great administration and palaces are great religious centers. And this is by no means accidental because religious life was a critical and important part of ancient human history as it is of modern human history. And so what we read about in the Torah this morning about the building of a religious ritual life of sacrifices and of a temple and all those other things, that's very much in keeping with the broad concept of how human societies and humans developed. Now that having been said, there's a broad and very important distinction. Because in the ancient world, there was a king or an emperor or a pharaoh. That pharaoh was seen as God. And that pharaoh, king, or emperor was in charge and the center of the religious life of the people. But the idea that we find presented to us in the Torah this morning is best summed up in the way the great Jewish philosopher, biblical commentator, Martin Buber, described it as. Buber said that the Jewish or biblical attitude of religious life and of government is religious anarchy. In other words, there is no king represented in the book of Leviticus. There is no human being seen as a representative of God put in the middle of the cultic worship, at the very center of everything that we read this morning, and at the very center of everything that we, we, we will read in successive mornings in the book of Leviticus and beyond. The thing that is at the center of the religious life of the ancient people of Israel, a radical and dramatic break from everything that existed before in the ancient world, the very center of it, was the human being, not the king, not the queen, not the priest, but me and you, the human. <clears throat> and that's why Buber said, the Torah represents a kind of religious government anarchy. Now for those of you who listened to last week, you know that I promised to give you a primer on the Israeli election. This is my fourth time doing it, so I'm a little exhausted. <laughs> but I want to share with you that my introduction of governmental anarchy perhaps suits what we're going into in this next round of, of Israeli elections. But I want to share a little joke with you. The old joke goes that when you land in Israel, you actually discover that there are two time zones, the 17th century and the 21st century. And nothing, of course, could be truer than what we're about to walk into. So this morning, what I'd like to do, with the brief amount of time that's available to me, 
is not to give you a broad bird's eye view of what the election issues are. You can go online and find all that much, much better written in the way that I could present it to you. What I think I'm going to do this morning is present to you a description of three characters to be found in the biblical, excuse me, in the electoral race that's going to unfold in three days. And through these three individuals, you'll perhaps see with a lens of exactly what's happening and what could happen. And then we're going to wrap up with a question. So here goes. The first person I want to present to you is somebody you know very well. His name is Benjamin Netanyahu, better known as Bibi. Now, for people, it's a shocking idea, actually. Um, most Israelis under the age of 25 have no idea of anyone else being the prime minister of the state of Israel except for Benjamin Netanyahu. In politics in general, there's a rule called the incumbency rule. The incumbent is the person who's already elected and sitting in the office. Incumbents have an enormous advantage over a challenger. Why is that? It is because voters generally prefer, as the expression goes, the devil they know versus the one they don't. Unless the one they do know is so bad that the prospect of someone different they don't know is not nearly as bad as the person that they do know. And so, Bibi Netanyahu famously never does TV debates. He has been challenged over and over again, particularly in this latest round of elections. He refuses time and time again to do a debate because he understands, cunningly understands, the dynamic of being an incumbent. And that is, if he goes and sits in a debate with all of his challengers, then he no longer says that he is the only prime minister. He sets himself on equal stage with everyone else. <clears throat> the uh, idea of Bibi Netanyahu and the history that he has, the criminal charges that are pending against him, his bizarre and weird alliances with all different kinds of people to keep political power is part of the large story of, of Benjamin Netanyahu and his ability to retain control and to remain as the prime minister. Which leads me to my second character. His last name is Ben Gvir. Ben Gvir is um, a extreme, well, these are interesting terms to use, but I'll use them anyway, a very right-wing person. <laughs> he is what they call a kahanas. For those of you who may remember uh, Jewish history from the 60s and 70s and 80s, the movement to free Soviet Jewry, um, will well, we'll, we'll well remember Mayor Kahana. One of the devotees of Mayor Kahana was a man named Baruch Goldstein, who murdered 29 Muslims uh, while they were praying in the city of Hebron. In the, in the area of the cave of the patriarchs, while the overwhelming majority of Israelis completely disavow themselves from anything associated with Kahana and Baruch Goldstein and his murderous actions, like every society, Israel has its crazies too. And there is a small fragment of Israeli society that worship not only Kahana, but the actions of Baruch Goldstein. 
this one person, Meir Ben Gvir, Ben Gvir, is one of those people. Benjamin Netanyahu, the current sitting prime minister of the state of Israel, has made, as it has been described in the Israeli media over and over again, a unholy alliance with that wing of extremist, hard-right, racist ideology, messianic-like ideology, which paints for us the broader picture of where Israeli politics are today. Typically, in the Western world, in the United States, Canada, and in Europe, when we look at the political world, we generally break it down into two fractions. We say that there is a left wing and that there is a right wing. But in Israel, that's not so true. The overwhelming majority of sentiment what we find in Israel today, and any quick look at the uh, surveys of political sentiment in Israel in terms of their voting, voting habits will make this abundantly clear, is that there is very little of a left wing left in Israel. Generally, what we see here is that a large majority of Israelis are what we would call right wing. And this is not for a large discussion today because why that's the case is a big discussion, but allow me to put it in front of you like this. The broad movement of the Israeli population from having somewhat of an equal divide between left and right wing to an overwhelming right-leaning right voting public is a result of the failure of the Oslo Accords and the Second Intifada. It reverberates as a traumatic episode in the Israeli public, even to this day, some 15, 18 years later. And so Israelis, first and foremost, want stability, security, protection. And that's why they vote a little bit to the right. And so Bibi is looking to harden up his right-wing coalition of ultra-Orthodox parties. Yes, even some of these crazy fringe Kahana followers in order to maintain his grip on power. The third person I want to talk about this morning is a fascinating person. You probably have heard him here and there. His English is actually very, very good. He's the son of a former Israeli politician and cabinet minister. His name is Tommy Lapid. That was his father. His name is Yair Lapid. He is, if there is anything along the lines of a centrist Israeli politic, that is where Yair Lapid is to be found. That is exactly where his policies are situated. He wants to disencumber the government from its religious connections with the ultra-Orthodox. He wants to focus the government on building affordable housing. He wants the um, educational network within the, within, within the country focused on more modern techniques of teaching. In short, his tagline for his party called Yeshatid, meaning there is a future, is called that he wants a memshla shfuya. He wants a government that is sound and reasonable, not a prime minister that is being dogged by criminal investigations and all other bizarre machinations. And Lapid is, if, like I said to you before, if there is a central politic to be found in Israel, you would do well to follow his tweets and listen to him talk because that is, and if the 
polls are accurate, which is my last point, if the polls are accurate, he's going to land somewhere along the lines of 19 to 22 mandates or seats in the Knesset, which will be second, second to only the, the, the Likud party headed by the current Israeli prime minister. It is not a small thing at all. My last point for this morning. You can look at the, uh, at the polls today, and it shows that no one single coalition is going to get to 61. It's a frightening idea that there could be a set of fifth elections within the next year. But the other thing that is seldom discussed but important in particular now for this election is that while there are 10% of the Israeli population that are undecided as to what they want to do, one famous Israeli statistician and political strategist, his name is uh, Yisrael Becher, in the Israeli news this past week, he said, while that number is 10%, remember that half of that 10% will not come to vote. When they're called upon by the uh, survey people, they say they don't know, but they don't show up actually to the polls and vote. He said the thing to pay attention to is the other 5%. Because the other 5%, every political strategist throughout the world knows that people in the, in the last five days before an election, if they still don't know who they're voting for, they're voting for change. And he says that's the big question mark in front of the Israeli election to unfold in a few days for us now. Some people say that we should hope that whatever happens in the election, it should result in a stable, long-serving government. That's not my feeling or my wish. My wish is, is that whatever comes out of the election, there should be a government that represents the kinds of values that the country is built on and the country dreams for. Shabbat shalom, everyone.